there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Do you like soccer? According to a recent article in Forbes magazine, among adults aged between 18 and 34, soccer was the favorite sport of 11% tying basketball. Well, my next guest is a huge soccer fan, but more importantly, he's written a really interesting book equating soccer thinking to effective management. But before I introduce him, I want to make sure that you know about the Java Junkies Journal. That is our weekly newsletter that we send out bright and early on Monday mornings, letting Java Junkies know what five episodes we're going to be dropping every day that week, Monday through Friday. And it's super easy to sign up. Just go over to the Time for Coffee website. That's time, the number four, coffee, and add your name and email to the box on the homepage. And that's it. Done. Now grab your mug and take a chug of a delicious caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Peter Loge, an associate professor in the School of Media and Public Affairs at the George Washington University. He's also a strategic and communications consultant. I got to ask him about that because I thought it would be strategic communications, but whatever, and an author. Peter's day job for the past 25 plus years has been the politics of public policy. He has served in senior positions for three members of the House of Representatives, the late Senator Kennedy, and in the Obama administration. In those roles, he put the first member of Congress on the internet, was a chief of staff during the impeachment of President Clinton, worked on the Affordable Care Act, and served as a senior advisor to the commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, a position that the commissioner created for Peter and to which he was appointed by President Obama. Peter's first book, Soccer Thinking for Management Success, Lessons for Organizations from the World's Game, debuted as the number one sports industry new release on Amazon. Peter, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Let's do this. Awesome. Let's do it. So, Peter, the book. What a cool idea. How did you, you how did you like come up with that idea to write a book about management using soccer as the vehicle to tell the story and teach the lessons? A good friend of mine is Ben Olson, the head coach of DC United, played for DC United, played for the US in the Olympics and the World Cup, uh, also a talented artist and just a really, really great guy. He took over as the head coach at DC United right around when I was taking over as the first vice president for external relations at the US Institute of Peace. And whenever we'd get together, we'd start talking about art and then we'd inevitably talk about management. And it turned out that a lot of the challenges he was facing as a new head coach were ones I was facing as a, a new VP in charge of a, a new program or a new sort of way to assemble the organization. And it struck me that a lot of the lessons from soccer could be applied to management, just as a lot of the lessons that I was providing to Ben hopefully helped him sort things out with the team. The more I talked to soccer people who manage and managers who play soccer, the more obvious it became that there are just a lot of parallels between running an organization and working in an organization in the 20 first century and the world's game. So could you give us an example? 
Sure. If you think about the way business used to work, when there, we had information scarcity, there weren't a lot of podcasts, there wasn't you know social media, the internet, it was hard to get information. And as, as a result, you wanted one person whose job was to gather the information, look at all the possibilities of what could happen, write a plan, send the plan out, people would execute the plan, information would feed back up the line, you'd assess what happened, and you'd do it again. It was very iterative, it's kind of a series of one-offs, because things weren't happening all the time. Information moved slowly and was hard to get. We now are in a position where we're driving in information. We have too much information. Things are always happening all the time. Everybody's constantly networked and networking, which the previous model, the old model, looks like American football. We've got the guys in the booth radioing down to the coach on the sidelines who calls over the quarterback, sends in the quarterback with the play, swaps in and out some specialists. They huddle, they run the play, they stop, they do it again. The current environment, the way we're currently working, work, looks much more like soccer, where it's 45 minutes of 11 guys on one team and 11 on the other, plus a referee, moving simultaneously together as a unit through time and space, across uh, up and back and left and right across the soccer field, solving problems in real time. The game doesn't stop. If something happens, the players have to figure out a solution to the problem then and there. They've got to figure out a way to share information with each other then and there to solve the problem, to advance the ball, to, to move towards their goals. It's, it's, it's soccer really is 90 minutes of systems thinking in action. How is organizational success like a soccer game? I think a good organization will have a clear and specific goal. In soccer, it's easy. They're called goals. You aim at them. <laughs> Organizations, it can be a little bit tougher to identify. But if you can't identify a goal, if you have to look at a piece of paper to know what your goal is, you're doing it wrong. You know, you need a clear, here's what the organization is moving towards. We are moving towards helping young people enter the workforce successfully. We're, we want to sell more pens, whatever it is. Then you've got to figure out what is your system you've got. How can everybody in this system, be it the, the marketing person, the salesperson, research and development, front office, security, the lawyers, what, how do each of these people work together to support each other and then to advance this shared goal, right? So, for example, if you work in a uh, company that's opening a bunch of franchises, right, and that means you're going to – the social media team is being told, hey, promote the fact that we're opening up three new stores in Washington, D.C. in the next six months. Then there's the web team is working on this. You've got the PR team calling the press. Now – if there's a story in the newspaper, that has to be fed to the social media team so they can push that out over social. That seems sort of obvious. What's less obvious and what makes good organizations work are the people from human resources saying, hey, we're opening up three new stores in Washington, D.C. in the next six months. we got to hire a lot of people. How do we start hiring those people? How can social media help us identify the best managers, the best front desk people, the best salespeople? How can the fact that we're looking for top talented people help marketing and advertising? You know, if we're hiring the best and the brightest, and I know that a company's hiring the best and the brightest, I probably want to go be a customer of that company because they've got a high standard for who they're hiring. Now you've got human resources involved in marketing and public relations and marketing and public relations helping people, helping human resources recruit the best and the brightest. If we get all these people together, we get them all in, that's going to have implications for the general counsel's office. You've got a lot more paperwork to process. You've got a lot more background checks we may have to run. We've got different rules of you know, different cities and different states about hiring and firing and staffing and wage and hour rules. So now general counsel's office has to be involved. And at the best, all of these units are moving together all to sell whatever it is this little store sells. Thank you for that. That's very helpful. As you were talking, I was thinking about my own experience as a professional working in different organizations. The most recent one I was working for is a, a large global humanitarian and development organization. Anybody who's worked in the nonprofit world knows that sometimes they can be very siloed. 
and I'm thinking about your example and what happens, my experience sometimes in organizations that aren't functioning the way a soccer team should, where all players are equal on the field. And correct me if I'm wrong, Peter, but in a soccer game, everyone is important and everyone needs to be moving towards that goal other than your goalkeeper who's back there protecting it. So in a siloed organization where you have people who have their own fiefdoms, maybe they're not with that plan. Maybe the HR team is saying, hey, my resources right now need to be going towards this and not that new store. How do you break those log jams and break down the silos in an organization that isn't functioning as properly as it should? That's a good question. Um, and that's really tricky. Um, if we're easy to be done by now, there's a lot of really good advice out there from a lot of good people. It's actually doing the advice, which is tricky. I think there are a couple of things to think about. I'll give you my own example from an international NGO. One, one way to re, to reconsider the question is not how do I do more work as HR to help marketing? It's how can marketing help make my job easier? Right? So if you're in HR, you're swimming in pretty good and mediocre resumes. You're swimming in people who are just applying for bl- jobs blindly without being a good fit for whatever the organization is. But if you can work with marketing and PRs as human resource and say, well, these are the three kinds of skill sets we're looking for. I want somebody with international experience who speaks at least one other language. I'd like them to have a business degree, an MBA or a business minor. And I want proof they can write. I want somebody who's thoughtful and who can write. So can you help me find somebody like that? Then the marketing team can say, our company is looking for people who can think creatively, who think internationally with practical skills. Now, marketing is promoting the brand because that's a cool brand, right? Who wouldn't want to buy stuff from that company mm-hmm. while simultaneously recruiting? So it's a matter of making each other everybody's lives a bit easier. Part of that is up to the manager to say, look, here's our shared goal. Here's what the system looks like. Here's how everybody in the system matters. Here's why they're important. Now, you as a system, go figure it out. In my in my book, I talked to a woman named Sonia uh, Ruiz Bolaños, who played a little bit of college soccer intramural, played in rec leagues and coaches her daughters now. And she was a very big deal at, at a very big deal healthcare, uh, global healthcare company. And her job was to fly around the world to find out hospitals that were working, what made them work, and then go to hospitals that weren't working and fix them. And she compared soccer to an operating room. In an operating room, everybody has to know their role. Everybody knows why their role is valuable. And everybody knows why everybody else's role is valuable. That way, if one of the nurses sees the surgeon making a mistake, the nurse can intervene. If the surgeon sees somebody else on the team making a mistake, the surgeon can intervene. If something goes wrong in the surgery, everybody knows what they have to do to fix the problem immediately. There isn't time to delegate or be in silos if you're in an emergency room or in an operating room. Someone is dying on the table in front of you. You have to know your job, your role to keep that person alive, what everybody else's role is so you can help those other people keep their folks alive. When I was at, uh, at the U.S. Institute of Peace, my task was to bring together five units, create a sixth unit, and make them all one big team that hummed along. And uh, they were great people, but as, as one of them said, they worked exceedingly teamly, but it's never intentional. <laughs> They'd run into each other getting coffee. It's a coffee shop. What are you working on? Oh, I didn't know that. That's kind of neat. I should be. One of the things I did was put as many of my team literally sitting next to each other as I possibly could. So my congressional relations team, the people in charge of talking to, to Congress, were sitting next to my communications, digital media press team. And so that way, if some of my legislators people were on the phone to a uh, Senate office, so a senator from Rhode Island, then somebody from the communications team could say, hey, you're 
you're, I just heard you talking to such and so's office, the senator from Rhode Island. You know what? I've got so I've got a good relationship with a newspaper in Rhode Island. Would it be helpful if we tried to get an op-ed or a letter to the editor? Oh yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. The senator would love to hear from us. Then someone in the education team would say, hey, I just heard you guys talking about Rhode Island. You know, we've got a school group coming in from Rhode Island. Would the senator be interested in meeting them? Oh, that'd be terrific. Maybe we can get a picture. Now we can put that back up on social media and talk about the great work the senator is doing and the kids are doing and the school is doing. Now the newspaper will have a really interesting story to write, right? Local kids go meet with senator and learn about the importance of peace building globally. It was simply putting people in proximity and encouraging them to listen to each other and help each other. I think some of the, the worst management advice anybody could ever give is stay in your lane. I hate that advice. It's as if human resources, finance, marketing, product development, sales, we're all somehow racing against each other for some mythical finish line. I, I need you in my lane. Right? Yeah. I'm not competing with HR or R&D. I need HR and R&D to tell me, hey, Peter, stop doing that dumb thing and do this smart thing instead. You know, I need to follow sometimes. Another great example of how this worked at the U.S. Institute of Peace was we had a situation that I had to deal with, and it was, it was kind of a big deal. And the vice president of the board, vice chair of the board, undersecretary of state for Africa, former ambassador to who knows how many countries, really big deal guy, smart, accomplished, well ahead of me on the food chain. I was pretty high in the food chain. He was Ambassador Moose was much, much higher than me. He plopped himself down at my desk on the visitor side, looked at me and said, Peter, what do you need me to do? I need you to make these five phone calls. Great. I'm on it. I'll report back. Great. There wasn't any mistaking who was more important, who was more experienced, or who was more valuable to the organization. But in that moment, I was the guy in charge of that problem, that solution. And he went and did it. And the next time there's a problem or a solution, I went to somebody junior to me. Or I went to, to the ambassador and said, how can we work together to help advance the organization. So as a junior staffer, you need to ask. Ask yourself, ask those around you, hey, what are you working on? How can I help? Here's what I'm doing. How do I fit into the system? What do you need from me? How can I solve a problem? I that, love I think, it. is how I begin to break it down. I love it. So Peter, you've anticipated my next question, which is when should students, when should young professionals start thinking about learning management? Right now, you can't possibly think about management too soon in your career. As a junior staffer, you need to think about managing up. And that's not just being obsequious to the boss. That's gross. Don't do that. But how do you help those above you um, succeed? How do you manage laterally? If you're an intern or your first year, or you're right out of college in your first job, how do you work with those around you who may be at the same level or just above you or just below you to advance a whole goal? It's not how do you get credit. It's not how you build your career. Don't think like that. Please don't think like that. Think about how can all of us work together to advance the goals of the organization. There are a tremendous number of places to do this for free. There are, you know, I'm a big fan of Harvard Business Review on Twitter. It's really expensive to subscribe to the magazine, but they've got a lot of free content. This is really good advice. Fast Company Leadership, the Management Center. There's a lot of places you can look to for real specific tips on how to just think about management. And I, of course, think it's when you, when, even if you're playing any sport, basketball or soccer or whatever, how is that group working together? If you play pickup basketball or pickup soccer, you show up with some folks you might know, some folks you might not know, and you got to figure out who's going to be on which team, what the specific rules are, like how serious is this game? What's your role in that? then how do you work together to accomplish a shared goal? No one knows who anybody is, but you got to figure it out on the fly. Think about what makes that work on the playground or on the field on a Saturday. And how can you bring those lessons to your office on a Monday? You don't want to be surprised by your teammates. You don't want to be surprised by your colleagues. 
You don't want to surprise your teammates. Don't surprise your colleagues. Talk a lot. You want to know if you're playing, uh, you want to, if you're playing soccer, you can't see anything that's going on. You need people around you to, to let you know what's about to happen next. That's probably what you want at work too. So use every opportunity you can to think about how you succeed in an organization. Start thinking about it right now. So Peter, you said something that is super important. And I'm guessing there may be some Java junkies who are scratching their heads saying, what does he mean by managing up? That's a good question. When I've been a manager, I have wanted people around me to help me succeed. And so what you need to do as a junior staffer is figure out how can you help your boss succeed? And your boss's goal should be to help the organization succeed. So how do you do that? How do you, sometimes you might be in a position where you've got to manage expectations. You're responding to three different people ahead of you, all of whom can assign you projects or work to do, and you can't possibly get them all done. So how do you do that? How do you go have the conversation with your boss and say, you know what, I'm in a real bind here. I, I'm willing to obviously put in the work. I know this is a 50 or 60 hour a week job, and I know I'm working you know, a chunk of this weekend, and that's cool, but even then, I can't do all of this at a high level. You know, how do you help your boss prioritize? How do you do that in a way that doesn't make you look whiny? I think millennials get an unfair rap for being sort of whiny and privileged and all that. I don't think that's the case. I love working with people right out of school, but there is the perception that somebody who's 21, 22, 23 is feeling a little self-righteous. So how do you navigate that? How do you prove that you want to really go all in for the organization in a way, though, that, that allows you to do your best possible work and doesn't let anybody down. It's all of that. Absolutely. And I can say just in terms of the lessons that I've learned, one of the things that young people can do really as a CYA, because you may not have the opportunity to work for a fabulous manager like Peter Loge. You may end up working for a manager like Andrea Koppel was when she worked at the same organization that uh, Peter was at, at MNR Strategic Services, when I didn't know my ass from my elbow. And what you're doing by managing up is by really forcing your supervisor to explain what you need to be doing, what your priority should be, because your boss may have assigned you 10 things to do. You can't read their mind. They didn't happen to tell you what you should be doing first, what you should be doing second. And so two days from now, when they come back to you and say, hey, where is number seven? And you're like, oh, but I've been working on one and two. So it's a CYA move to go back to them and ask them those follow-up questions so that you don't get caught because they didn't do a good job of managing down. And a, a critical way to do that is to demonstrate that you want to help the manager succeed rather than, well, gosh, I've got a kickball game tonight. You know, and, <laughs> and one way to do it is to, because your manager may not know, right? Your manager, you're paying far more attention to your life than anybody else around you is, including your manager. So your manager may not know that you've been assigned three things by, by other people. Your manager may have forgotten that what they handed to you yesterday was conflicting with what you have to do today. Sometimes managers think out loud and you as a staffer want to do everything you're told. And so you jump on it. All your manager is doing was thinking out loud. They should work with somebody who called it whispering into a megaphone. So what you can do as a, as a junior staffer is go to the manager and say, hey, I've got these three priorities. I know they're all really important. I did some quick back of the envelope math, and they're each going to take me about six hours. And I can be here till about 8 o'clock tonight, and I'll come in tomorrow morning early, and I can log Certainly, I can log 12 hours over the next day and a half or day to get this done, but I, I just, I'm not going to be able to do all three 
all three are going to take me 18 hours to do. I got 12 hours to do them. Help me sort out here. Which one should I should I not do, or which one should I pay less attention to, or that sort of thing? That way, you are helping solve a shared problem rather than either doing a bad job because uh, that'll happen if you try to do too much, and you're also not appearing to slough off work. You're not you're not being lazy. I love it, Peter. That is such great advice. What do you think are the most important aspects of management for a brand new professional to learn, whether that's as an unpaid intern, a volunteer, or someone who's in another entry-level position? That's a good question. And it's like you, like all managers, I've made a tremendous number of mistakes as a manager. My mistakes have usually been feeling like I've got to prove that I'm the manager. So we end up making decisions just to demonstrate you can make decisions. Sometimes it's a lack of clarity. So I'd say if you're a new manager, have a clear goal. What's your benchmark? Is it moving three more units of A? Is it getting a bunch more people to sign on to a letter? Is it, if you're in charge of an event, is it filling the room? What's that goal? How does everybody fit in achieving that goal? So you have a goal, you have a system, and then making sure that people know their role in that system and then holding them accountable to that. And your job then is to keep that little machine going. You don't have to be in front of the machine. You don't have to be leading the band the whole time. Your job is to make sure that that system is working together to achieve the goal of filling the room, getting you know a thousand people to sign the petition, getting people to the polls, whatever it is, and having humility. People who work for you are going to look to you to make decisions. If you're honest about how you're making those decisions, if you're clear with your instructions, clear that uh, there's a logic to it, they're going to follow it. And uh, if they think you're making a mistake, you've got to be willing to say, you know what, I think this is the right way to go. Thanks for the input. It's important to have, but we're doing it my way. And if it works, then you applaud the team. You don't go back and say, I told you so. Right? And if it fails, you say, you know what, I own that. Let's have a debrief. What are we going to do differently next time? Cool. Let's do that. And some of the best advice, I think, comes from Ben Olson, again, the head coach at DC United, is when in doubt, be honest. Yes. Yes, that is, that's wonderful advice, not just for your professional life, but your personal life as well. Peter, I want to flash back to when you were a young Java junkie at Emerson College (laughs) and you were getting your BS in speech. Uh, but also in communications, <laughs> politics, and law, you know, cue the laugh track there. Did you know what you were going to do with your degree? <laughs> no. I, I, I make plans to fill time and feel better about myself. My life has been a series of, of happy accidents. I have, I have a couple of standard caveats when I give advice. One is the advice is inevitably more about the person giving the advice than the person receiving it. Because all of us make sense of our lives. We look back and say, oh, well... Clearly, what I was thinking about in the fall of 1989 led, obviously, to the tweet I said this morning in the fall of 2018. It's nonsense. What we'll do when we give advice is say, I am successful, happy, and joyous. Do as I did, and you too will find happiness and riches. Or we think, wow, my life is a train wreck. For the love of God, don't do what I did. As if what I did in 1990 or 84 or whatever has any relationship to the fact that I'm sitting in an office in Foggy Bottom today. I I wanted to do politics. I grew up doing politics. I grew up in a political town. U.S. Representative Rosa DeLauro managed the first campaign I worked on as a mayor's race in New Haven, Connecticut in 1970, I don't know, seven, five, something like that. I went to college. I was going to make movies. Star Wars changed my life. I was going to I was gonna make movies. Turns out at Emerson, they wanted to make films. And I just, I had no interest in that. And so I went into television. How hard could television production be, right? So my classmates include people who've won Emmys for producing The Voice, the creator of, of Will and Grace, 
the executive producer of Dirk Gently. I mean, it's just, it's absurd, the people I went to college with. So I, I went into politics because really, how hard could that be? And I stuck. It seemed to, it seemed to work. And then I went off to grad school at Syracuse and I was going to be an academic. I was going to be a professor. That's how I went to the ivory towers. I went and I taught at Clemson University for a couple of years and I was going to be, then I was going to, went out to Arizona State and I was going to get another master's degree and a PhD. And there's a series of running jokes about Jerry Brown the time I was running for president for the, I think, third time, I wound up back in politics. You know, it's something I grew up doing. It's I was told that civic engagement, that engaging your community, engaging your democracy is important to do. And I've been really incredibly lucky enough to be able to to do that and, and pay my bills. Yeah, the paying the bills part is important. I'm not I'm not there yet, but I hope to be. <laughs> it's um, that is important. You can't you can't discount that. You know, um, you don't need all the money in the world. And I've certainly taken pay cuts for things that I enjoy. But um, you got to You have to keep a realistic view on what's going to pay off the student loans. Uh, living in D.C. isn't cheap. But I've, I've not. You know, I sort of had a general idea. That, and politics fits my my personalities as a my first chief of staff used to say it's a great job for somebody with a good memory and a short attention span. (laughs) Peter, what else did you do at Emerson in terms of extracurriculars, whether it was clubs or fraternities or, you know, fill in the blank volunteering that in hindsight, you look back on and say, oh, wow, I actually really did hone some valuable skills while I was doing that that apply in my professional life. Interesting question. Probably three things. And um, Emerson College would be happy I'm, I'm saying these three. And not the first is television. It's, it's all you can study at Emerson is communications, film, TV, theater, speech, whatever. And the TV program is really astonishingly good. And I got to work with some really good people. Television production, as you know, is intense. It's high pressure, long hours. The stakes feel very high. And if something needs to be done, you have to dive in and do it. I learned a tremendous amount doing television production. I wasn't very good at it, but I was enthusiastic. The second is my fraternity. I was in Phi Alpha Tau, am in Phi Alpha Tau, which is a local. But I got to college and I was having trouble making friends and didn't know if I fit in and I wanted to transfer and I was unhappy. And then somebody who's then a senior who remains a good friend, Paul Tatro, who runs Forge Theater here in town, here in Washington, asked me to pledge his fraternity. I made a group of friends who taught me a little bit about how to be a grown up. You know, how to sit still in a meeting, you put your feet squarely on the floor, how to tie a tie, how to be presentable, which I did not learn growing up apparently. And some of the folks in the fraternity, some of my brothers, remain some of my closest friends. I saw a couple of them in Los Angeles over the weekend. It's really, was I found it very helpful. Um, and the last was college debate. I joined the college debate team. I was playing soccer and hurt my knee. The doctor said I could either have surgery or take up something non-competitive. And so I joined the debate team because I did not want to have surgery on my knee. And in college debate, at least at the, the level at which I was doing it, you don't learn. It's not good men speaking well, right? It's not quintillion rhetoric. It's analyzing and forming complicated arguments really, really quickly. You learn how to think quickly, how to think critically, and how to assemble an argument really fast. You also learn how to win and how to lose. I, I had a very frustrating period of my college career where we'd get to the elimination rounds of every debate tournament and lose. And it was just, it was this insanely frustrating time. And then you learn how to win. You know, you lick your wounds, you, you learn from the failure. And then being uh, being the top guy, it has its own set of pressures because now you're the one who everybody, everybody's gunning for. would go to a debate tournament and suddenly everybody else at that debate tournament had their, their eyes on me and my debate partner. 
their whole goal that weekend was to was to beat us, which is a different kind of a pressure. You learn about issues, a lot of different issues very quickly. You know, you're an inch deep, but a mile wide, which in politics is a good place to be. So I think probably those three things, television production, my fraternity and college debate. Dang, I'm so glad I didn't do debate because you would have kicked my butt (laughs) right and left. So, Peter, I try to ask all of my Time for Coffee guests to share a story from a time in their professional life when they really struggled because God knows we've all had those times. And one of the times, frankly, that has brought the two of us together is that it was the second time that I was fired in my professional life. And it happened when I was in my 40s. And it was at a firm where you, man, had been the SVP of communications. And everybody was talking about, oh, Peter Loge, this phenomenal guy who walks on water. And I get fired from the place. But you know what? It's all good. It brought us together. And Peter, I was wondering if you would share a time in your career when you struggled, and more importantly, how you came through the other side? That's an interesting question. And I would point out... Well, you did you did replace me at MNR. We have differences because skill sets of reasons. We've got many more things in common, including a lot of mutual friends at Mercy Corps and the US Institute of Peace and others. I think being a consultant, I think, is is incredibly humbling. I was struck out on my own after MNR, I thought you know, whenever you work at a consulting firm, you think if I ran the zoo, I'd do things differently. And you can either continue to think that or you can try to run the zoo. And so I decided to go out and run the zoo. And and I started strong. I had some clients that were just a bad fit for MNR. They came with me when I went to the firm and they came with me when I left and I wasn't poaching or anything. It's stuff there's nobody left there to do because it wasn't straight communication. And one of the things I, I discovered was you're either the person who within a couple of years has 25 or 30 people working for you and you're doing great and folks are calling you. And I've got some friends who are really, really good at this, who I respect tremendously who are in that boat. You look at firms like Dewey Square Group, uh, Glover Park Group, Spitfire Strategies, even MNR. I wasn't that guy. After about five years, it was pretty clear I was only ever going to be me and whatever team I had to assemble for the project at hand. And at that point, you think, okay, am I going to continue to do this, you know, where you spend your downtime panicking and hustling for clients, and then your busy time thinking, oh my God, I'm too busy. I've got too many clients, a boom and bust cycle. Or do I kind of give up and say, you know what? I've been a consultant. I tried it, did it long enough to claim I learned stuff, but it's time to go back into and uh, stop running the zoo, join somebody else's zoo for a while. And so I did after... I don't know, seven or eight years, I just closed Milo Public Affairs. I didn't have a job in hand. I wasn't going to look for clients while I was looking for a job. I thought that would be unfair to everybody. And it took me a while for someone to take a risk on a guy who hadn't worked in an office for five or seven or however many years it had been. And that's when I went over to the U.S. Institute of Peace. They took a shot. But that was that's not easy. It's hard to separate the skill set from the person. You know that if you get hired, it's not because of your winning personality or your, you know, how well you dress or whatever, or your values or your qualities as a human. And if they don't hire you, or if they fire you, you've got to remember that's just the skill set. It's the moment. It's not you as a person. But wow, is that hard to remember, right? It's really easy to get full of yourself when you're winning and thinking it's because you're special. It's really easy to feel down when you're losing and thinking it's because you're a bad person. Maintaining the even keel is really, really tough. Do you regret having done it? No, no. I learned I learned a huge amount. I met a lot of interesting people. I, I got to work on some exciting projects. Uh, I was able to take a little bit of time off. I wasn't as good at it as a lot of other people. I'm a little, a little more fear-driven than some of my friends are. I got to do some pretty cool stuff, and it, and it wound me up. It landed me at the U.S. Institute of Peace, which is astonishing. I had a view of the Capitol from my desk. 
I got to work with Steve Hadley, who is a dedicated and wonderful public servant. He was President Bush's national security advisor. He's one of the most decent, thoughtful people I've ever met. Um, I got to work with people like Ambassador Bill Taylor, who's the executive vice president of USIP. And, and I'm not the only one who did this. People would sit in meetings with Bill to watch how Bill behaved in a meeting, to learn how you should behave in a meeting. Like it didn't even matter what the topic was. I want to know what Bill's doing so that when I go to my next meeting, I know how to behave. It was incredible. I got to, I, I got to work with a lot of our mutual friends, and that then led to a bunch of other random accidents and phone calls and an opportunity to work in the administration and all sorts of stuff. So And the book. And the book. And the book. That was, um, again, because of friends. It was Ben Olson is just this remarkable human being. He's a, obviously a hell of a soccer player. You know, play the World Cup for crying out loud. He'll play pickup with you occasionally. And he'll be, you know, kind of be banned, kind of kicking around. And every now and then, he'll remind you that you watch the World Cup on television and he was actually in it. <laughs> so, oh, right. That's ben. But he, we were at some event and I'm involved with a group in Washington called DC Scores. They're all over the country. Your listeners should check it out. And uh, Ben, who is a, you know, a soccer star at that point, was there kind of supporting the, the, the organization. And I went up and he, he and I lived across the street from each other. So we knew each other to say hi. And um, I thanked him for taking the time for coming out. You know, thanks so much for, for taking the time to come support this. He looked at me and said, well, well, you took the time. So why shouldn't I? Nice. But, wow, that's like, you're like, <laughs> you know, your, your face is on billboards, you know? Nice. But that's just and so it's, I got to talk to smart, interesting people who, a lot of people I called, if I'd called as a fan, I'd wind up on some list. You know, I'm a fan. Can I talk? No. <laughs> but if you call them and say, hey, I'm writing a book, can you tell me how smart you are? They'll give you all the time you want. That is so. a great lesson for Java junkies to take in. So Peter, final time for coffee question. If you could go back to Emerson and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom that you have now, <laughs> what advice would you give yourself? Probably get over yourself. Pay a little more attention to class. Listen a little more closely to your colleagues. There's a bit of a fish pond ratio question. I was one of the guys who did politics at a school where everybody else did TV, film, and theater. And so it's not hard to stand out as one of the top guys who does politics if you're one of the only people who does politics. Um, I probably should have been a little less of a jerk, a little more humble, a little nicer. I would have learned more. I certainly would have would have been a better friend, I think, probably. Is what I, yeah. Okay. Well, listen, you turned out okay. I got to tell you. <laughs> It's been such a pleasure to have coffee with you today. I want to thank you for making time for coffee with me, Peter, and with the Java Junkie community. I really enjoyed hearing more about your fantastic new book, Soccer Thinking for Management Success, Lessons for Organizations from the World's Game, and learning about your career and kind of your lessons learned. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. And I, I think what you're doing is terrific. I wish that something like this had been around when I was when I was in college. I probably would have been less miserable and probably less of a jerk. So I hope your I hope your listeners and your your blog readers and podcast listeners appreciate uh, all you're doing for them. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee. 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much. <laughs>